For those of you who are uh, joining us for the first time, who are visiting, I want to welcome you in particular. And I also want to explain what it is uh, that you find us doing this morning. We're currently in a series for uh, December. Um, we are observing the um, traditional holiday season in Christianity known as Advent, which basically just means to wait. It means to anticipate. And so um, Advent is about preparing our hearts to celebrate the fact that God has come in Jesus Christ. It's also preparing our hearts to anticipate that Jesus will return and finish what he started. And to do that, um, we are doing a series we've called Not Yet Christmas. We're, we're looking at um, places where it looked like the Messiah had come. Places where it looked like the time of waiting w was over. We're looking at anticipated children who looked for a moment like they were going to be the one that God had promised. Okay, And so last week we looked at Noah. Um, and this week we're going to look at Joseph as the son of Israel. And so we're going to pick up actually in Genesis chapter 35. And uh, if you need a Bible this morning, you can see them stuck in the back of a pew. Feel free to grab one. Um, Genesis is that opening book uh, of your Bible. And we're going to pick up in chapter 35. Now, before we read, there has been this trend over the last 15 or 20 years to tell classic, famous, well-known stories from the perspective of a different character. Um, for example, like one of the earliest ones I remember is, is when they put out Lion King one and a half, okay? And it was just the Lion King, but told from the peanut gallery of Timon and Pumbaa, right? And now we've done it with, um, with the villains taking a centerpiece and telling their side of the story. Think of things like Wicked, for example. Um, and there's also, I think, this tendency or this interest to, um, to be drawn to this to the degree that, um, you know, I remember hearing a guy say once that in his opinion, the Lord of the Rings' main protagonist was Sam and not Frodo. Um, or maybe you think of Dwight in The Office, who is convinced that Johnny Lawrence is the hero of Karate Kid, right? There, there's just this sense, and I actually want to do something similar this morning. I, I'm going to um, presume that most of us are familiar with the story of Joseph, and we don't have time to walk through the whole thing. We are going to walk through it, though, but I want to focus um, primarily on Jacob, Joseph's father, and Judah, one of Joseph's, Joseph's brothers, because, um, because it's easy to miss the significance they play in the story. And because we don't always see that, we miss the conclusion of the story, because what we're used to is Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, brings Jacob to Egypt, and they all live happily ever after, at least until you turn to the book of Exodus, right? That's, that's how we normally read the story but we miss the climactic conclusion of the story, which is a, is a shocker. It's a, it's a surprise ending. It's an after credits, changes everything scene, okay? 
And, and that's, that's what I want to draw our attention to because we're going to see it follows that same cadence. Here is Joseph, the golden child, the anticipated one, the savior of Israel. All true, but not the one they're waiting for. And that's where the surprise is. And so I just want to draw your attention to um, here in Genesis chapter 35. Uh, look at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And he said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Okay. Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at this story. Father, we ask for your guiding spirit this morning to instruct us in your word. And as we explore a well-known and well-worn story from a different angle, I pray as we prayed last week, as we will pray next week throughout this whole series, um, that you would stoke the desires of our heart in anticipation and excitement for Jesus Christ, who is the true anticipated son, who is the true Noah and the greater Joseph and the better Solomon. We just ask that you would help us, um, that you would instruct us, and that you would find soft and supple hearts to receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's a lot that God speaks to Jacob or Israel here that is not surprising if you read the book of Genesis. In fact, it's got one major thread that just runs through all of Genesis, which is this statement, be fruitful and multiply. Right? That's what God says to Adam and Eve. We read it last week in the story of Noah. After Noah uh, survives the flood with his family, he calls them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then God suddenly comes to one man and his barren wife in his old age and says, I will make you fruitful and I will multiply you. Right? And so he's, he's moving towards this, uh, this agenda, towards this promise of setting right what went wrong in Genesis 3, what went wrong in the garden. And so Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac receives those same promises. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and as we see here, he receives those promises. But I want you to notice that last line there. He says, kings shall come from your own body. That's a pronouncement of anticipation. And since we generally don't start the story of, of uh, Joseph till chapter 37, I think we miss Jacob's mindset. But let's, let's notice now what happens in chapter 37. So here we are a few years later. It says in verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. And then we get the introduction to the Joseph story. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. 
Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dream and for his words. Now, what did God tell Jacob? From your body shall come a ruler. And Joseph says, man, I had the strangest dream. It was like I was the ruler. And his older brothers go, come on. And then notice verse 9. He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Right? This is an escalation. This isn't just the brothers, but the sun and the moon, the mother and father. It's, it's a high exaltation. But I want you to notice what it says here in verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Why? I promise you, my dad doesn't remember any of my dreams. No matter how strange or how significant they may have seemed to my 17-year-old self, why does Jacob hold on to this dream? Because it rings a bell. Okay. Now, we can add a few layers to this that are of interest to us. Um, one is, Jacob knows what it's like to be the chosen one and to be rejected. Okay, because Jacob had a destiny as well. And before he was even born, his mom was given a word from the Lord that the sons, the twins that were in her womb would wrestle with one another, but the younger would prevail. He was the one who was supposed to have the destiny, but his dad, Isaac, he was pretty fond of Esau because Esau was a hunter and made a really good, uh, you know, hunt uh, like a venison stew. And he was excited about his son. And so in his old age, he was going to give everything to his oldest son, which is traditional. Now, the way that that gets reversed is kind of a mess because Jacob is kind of a character. But nonetheless, Jacob knows what it's like to, uh, to be the younger brother. And on top of that here, he loves Joseph. He actually has, shows favoritism to Joseph. And that's what creates all of this family tension. Like, it would be hard to read this story and find Joseph in a pit and, and leave Jacob, his father, off the list of guilty parties, right? The brothers are jealous because of his father's treatment, and they're irritated because of Joseph's dreams, okay? But he lodges this in his brain, and he goes, interesting. Now, Let's notice what happens next, because this is important. And so what happens, I'll summarize a little bit, is that a few years later, Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers who have taken their flocks to more fertile land further away. And so he's just operating as a messenger, and he goes to look for them, and they see him coming, and they say, hey, there's that dreamer. 
let's do something about him since he's far from home. And initially the pitch is, let's kill him. And Reuben steps in, who happens to be the oldest son, and he goes, I don't think that's a good idea. Let's just throw him in a pit for now, and then we can talk some more. And the text tells us that Reuben actually has a plan to deliver him, to get him out of there. Okay? And so his plan is, throw him in the pit, and then when the brothers are asleep, sneak in, release, and send him home. But that's not what happens. And it doesn't happen because of Judah. Now, Judah is the fourth born of the family. Other than that, at this point, he's not really that significant. He's not really known for anything. In fact, the only reason why he is heir apparent to the throne is because Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, his older brothers, are a mess. Okay. But nonetheless, Judah speaks up, and this is what happens. And so, uh, look with me at verse... 25 of 37. They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Now, it's, how do you read Judah there? Is this a good hero statement or a villain statement? It's hard, right? He's not going to kill his younger brother. That's a win. <laughs> but do you really believe his statement when he says, for he's our own flesh, guys. He's our flesh and blood, so let's sell him into slavery. Right? It's weird. It's messy. And ultimately, it's a terrible, terrible, evil thing. And all of his brothers agree. They're all involved in this sin against their brother. But Joseph is the planner. He's the, or excuse me, Judah is the planner. He's the instigator. He's the one who operates here. Okay. In other words, I'm suggesting to you, he leads his brothers in this evil against Joseph. Okay. And so what happens is they do sell him into slavery. And he goes to Egypt, and then look at verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, here your Bibles does something strange. It takes a detour. Because notice, if we just skip chapter 38 and open to chapter 39.1, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. We just read that, right? It pauses the story and then it recaps. And the truth is, if somebody snuck into our Bibles and edited out chapter 38, if you didn't know your Bible well enough, you wouldn't know it was missing. It makes sense. The story just keeps going. And what is in between chapter 37 and 39? One of the worst stories in the Old Testament. A story about Judah. Why? Why is this an important story? Here, I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version. Judah finds a wife, a Canaanite woman, through her has three sons, and then goes and finds her oldest, or his oldest son, a wife, and they get married, and before they have children, because this oldest son of Judah is such an evil guy, God just takes his life. He just dies early in life before he has any kids. Now, there's a traditional cultural practice 
that we find throughout not just the people of the Jews, but throughout the area that they live in that we sometimes call the leveret practice. Because lineage and legacy was so important, often an unmarried brother would marry his older brother's widow, and the first child that they had together would be dedicated to continuing the line of the older brother. Okay. And so Onan, the second son of Judah, takes up this position, but he has no interest in doing that, and so he keeps messing with their sex life so that she can't get pregnant. And that's super weird on a thousand levels, but the weirdest part of it is he's unwilling to sire a son for his brother's behalf. So God kills him too. Now, we know that, because the text tells us. Judah doesn't. He just knows every time I send a man home with this woman, they die. <laughs> he's got one son left, his youngest. And he says, you know, he's a little young to get married, so Tamer, go back to your mom and dad's house and hang for a while. And the younger son grows up, and he continues to grow, and Tamar's waiting, and nothing happens. Okay. And so she comes up with a plan. She dresses like a prostitute. She plants herself in, in a road that she knows Judah is going to walk, and he pays her to have sex with her. And then she takes, as sign of payment, some things that clearly identify him, the Old Testament version of a driver's license and a credit card, okay? <laughs> and he says, I'll send a goat in a few weeks. And so he sends a servant with a goat. She's nowhere to be found. And eventually he hears that his son's widow, who's been hanging out at mom and dad's house, is pregnant. And the first words out of her mouth is, she will die. Bring her before me. And she says, this is how I became pregnant. And she presents Judah's driver's license and credit card, okay? <laughs> This is what happens. It's a mess of a story. And again, Judah, good guy, bad guy. He's a total mess, okay? But what he says at that point is significant. Because if you will, at that point, he's publicly, and remember, this is not happening in some private living room. This is, this is the ancient Near East. There are all of Judah's sons and their wives, there is all of his household servants, there's a whole bunch of people around, and Judah's hand is caught in the cookie jar. And notice what he says here. He says here, uh, verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give to her my son, Shalah, and he did not know her again. He's repentant. He's repentant. Okay. And then the story returns to Joseph. And again, the question becomes, why tell that story at all? Now, there are some real solid contrasts between Judah's behavior and Joseph. Judah's behavior on his own volition is one of sexual promiscuity. And what happens in the next chapter of Joseph? His master's wife approaches him and, and propositions him to commit adultery with her. And he refuses. In fact, he refuses so strongly that he's wrongly accused because she grabs him by the coat and he strips out of it and runs from the house barely clothed, which ends up being evidence in the court case against him, and he finds himself in prison. Joseph, good guy or bad guy? Tremendous integrity. Okay. In fact, 
outside of his arrogant teenage years, it's hard to fault Joseph for this entire story. And so some people go, it's just a contrast. Look at who Joseph is in comparison to Judah. But I'd suggest there's more going on because here's what happens. Joseph's life is a continual progression of problems. So his brothers sell him into slavery. He gets sold to an Egyptian man, and God blesses everything he does, and this Egyptian man flourishes because of Joseph. But then his wife propositions him. Because of Joseph's integrity, he resists her, and because of that, he ends up in prison. Okay? Now, being sold as a slave is a bad thing. Being in an ancient near prison is a worse thing. Now, what has Joseph done wrong at this point? Nothing. And his life just gets worse, and the pattern repeats itself. And so in the prison, everything he touches is blessed, and he becomes, instead of, uh, you know, instead of a prisoner in the prison, he becomes vice president of operations you know, in the prison. He's basically running the place, and, and not like we talk about you know, in, in some movie where it's all the inmates against the guards. He's working for the prison now. He's respected, and things are going well for him. And then one day, two people from Pharaoh's own court are thrown into prison on the same day, and they wake up the next morning having the weirdest dreams. And Joseph steps in, and he gives them the interpretation, and he's dead on. He says, your dream means you're going to be restored in three days. Your dream means you're going to be put to death in three days. And it happens. And the one who's restored, he says, hey, just when you stand before Pharaoh, remember me. Maybe this is my ticket out. And the guy forgets. And so, eventually, though, Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. And at that point, the cupbearer goes, you know what? Dream interpretation. I know a guy. He's a foreigner. He was a slave. And now he's in prison. But he's good with dreams. And he brings him before Pharaoh. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, he says, hey, dreams are God's property. Tell me the dreams. And he interprets the dreams, and this is what's coming. He says, we're about to have some seven of the most fruitful and abundant years of harvest we've ever had. But after that will be seven years of no harvest at all, total famine. And he says, so what you should do, king, is appoint someone in charge of, uh, of all of the agriculture so that um, you know, reserves can be stored up so that we can make it through the harvest. And Pharaoh goes, who better than you? And so suddenly, and I, I want you to notice the arc here, Joseph's life's been going like this, and then suddenly it just springs way up, and he's second in power in all of Egypt, which at the time is like the most powerful empire in the area. And this famine doesn't just impact Egypt, but the land of Canaan where Jacob's family is. And so Jacob's family goes, well, I hear there's bread in Egypt. And he says, so I want you, my sons, to go and to buy bread so that we survive. Now, one of the reasons why the story of Joseph is such a beloved story is because how could you have a better setup than that? Last time they saw Joseph, 17 years ago, they sold him into slavery. They forgot about him. They've lied to dad and said he was killed by a wild animal. And now they get to Egypt and they don't recognize 
you know, Joseph in his Egyptian garb 17 years later, and he's the one who controls what happens next. Now, I've told you guys before, especially those of you who grew up with Bible stories, you have to learn how to read them again for the first time. And so you probably know that Joseph is going to put his brothers through the ringer, and then eventually he reveals himself to him, says, all is forgiven, what, God meant for, uh, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But when you're reading the story, you don't actually know what Joseph is up to. You don't actually know if he's got, you know, a little bit of a saw propensity, and this is just a torturous, intentional plot. His brothers had plotted him, now Joseph's working a plot. Is it against them or for them? Is he just going to slowly crush them? Because remember, he's been through 17 years of consequence because of their decisions. And you don't know this when you're reading. In fact, Joseph's behavior seems a little bit erratic. The first thing he does when they show up, he recognizes them and he says, you were clearly spies. Right? That's how it starts. Okay. But the thing he does is he says, all right, you tell me that you're 12 sons of the same man, that one is no more, that happens to be Joseph, but you have a younger brother, Benjamin, you didn't bring with you. Now remember, Benjamin is Joseph's whole brother. They share a mother, Rachel. He's half-brothers with the rest of the crew. And Benjamin is the last remaining child of his father's favorite wife. Okay, so what is the possibilities that all of these men are fond of Benjamin? Slim. See, he's setting up a test. He wants to see where they're at. He wants to see how the guilt of years and years have worked on their hearts. And so he sets up a similar scenario. Let's get Benjamin in here and see how that goes. Okay. But again, I want to draw your attention to the conversation that happens when they get home. Because basically this is what happens. He says, leave one with me. They leave Simeon. Go home, get your younger brother and come back. And if you don't bring your younger brother, not only is Simeon not getting out, but I'm not selling you any more food. Okay. So they come home, and Jacob is a wreck. Okay. And so uh, look at this with me, moving forward to chapter uh, 42, all the way at the end. Okay. So they, they get home, they open their sacks, and everything they paid they find in their bags again, okay? And so verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father said to him, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you take Benjamin. All this has come against me. So Jacob is looking at this, and it's like his sons are being picked off by circumstances one after another. And the truth is, he blames his sons here for Simeon being locked up. He doesn't know that they're the prime cause of Joseph's missing. But he feels all these things. Okay? And then Reuben speaks up. Now remember, Reuben, again, is the one who tried to spare Joseph, and it doesn't work out. Notice what he says here in verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Now, Jacob doesn't buy this. Does anyone have any guesses why? Dad, 
I'll kill your grandchildren if I can't set this right. There's nothing consoling in that. And more significantly, who's going to bear the weight of consequence here? Not Reuben. Okay. And so what does Jacob say? He says, verse 38, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he's the only one left. Now, notice again, we see Jacob's heart there. His brother is dead, and he's the only one left, except for the ten of you, right? He says, If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. He says, I'll die of grief if anything happens to Benjamin. Now, eventually, hunger wins out. And so they have another family meeting, and he says, you got to go back to Egypt. And they says, Dad, we already told you, we can't go back without Benjamin. And here, guess who speaks up? It's Judah. And so notice what he says. Verse 8, And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. Now, we're starting to get a revelation here. It's a couple of things. One, remember this is Judah who literally bereaved his dad of Joseph. Judah, who instigated the plot. And now he steps in and he says, I'm going to protect Benjamin. I'm going to keep him safe. Okay, that's a change. And maybe, this is really just a suggestion, because I think this might, uh, this might try and pull back the curtain too much. But it is interesting to me that that story where, where Ur and Onan, the two older sons of Judah, die, and then he's so tender and careful with the third one, Maybe he knows what his dad feels about the youngest. Maybe he knows now the grief of a father. But for whatever reason, he takes the leadership, he takes the responsibility, and he says, I'm going to bring him back to you. I'll put it on my own shoulders. I'll put it on my own life. And this isn't just words, because he gets a chance to prove it. You see, Joseph's plot like I said, is to get Benjamin there, not just to make sure that he's alive, but to set up a similar scenario to what they had done with Joseph years earlier. And so he tells his steward, all right, let them buy food, and I want you to put my favorite silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And so they leave. They don't know that the cup is in their bags, and Joseph sends a servant after them to accuse them of stealing it. And one of the brothers foolishly speaks up and says, look, we don't have your cup. The man who you find it in, you should just kill him. And they open the bags from oldest to youngest. You know, a lot of literary tension. And the last bag is Benjamin's. And there's the cup. And so they all collectively return to Egypt and stand before Joseph. Okay. And here's what they say. They say, God has found us out. And I want to remind you at that point, they're not talking about the cup. They know they didn't take the cup. Throughout the whole story, they have these whispered conversations where God is finally bringing consequence for their sin against their brother. And so they own it completely and basically say, whatever happens, we, we deserve it. 
make us all servants. And he goes, no way. Only one stole the cup, only one's going to be a servant, and it's going to be that guy, Benjamin. And then Judah shows up. And listen to the speech that he gives. Verse 18 of chapter 44. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in your Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Had you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Where did we start? How did Judah feel about that statement in the beginning? How did all of his brothers feel about him? Joseph, whom his father loved, therefore they hated him. And here he uses that same phrase to speak of Benjamin. And notice what he says. He says, verse 21, Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And yet, Years earlier, Judah presents a bloody garment to his dad and lies and says, your son is dead. Right? Do you see the transformation that's happened in Judah here? Okay. Verse 23, then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down to you, you will not see my face again. We went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food. We said we cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with us. Then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One is left me. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father... And the boy is not with us then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back with you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, I know we didn't read through the whole story, but here's another feature of Hebrew literature. Repetition. We already know this story, right? So why does the narrator take the time word for word to walk through account, the account again? Because it wants to emphasize what's going on here. And then notice the conclusion. Verse 33, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. He says, take me in his stead. This is a new Judah. This is a different Judah. And, and to be fair to the rest of the brothers, they've all gone through a similar transformation. They've recognized the guilt and all collectively decided to go back to Egypt for the sake of Benjamin. But Judah takes the lead here. Why is Judah such a prominent part of the story? We focus so much on Joseph, but Joseph is a constant. When we tell stories, we look for the character that changes, and it's Judah who changes. 
Now, let me remind you again of what's been going on. Jacob is anticipating the fulfillment of a promise that one of his sons will be king. In fact, Joseph remembers the dreams that he has the first time his brothers come into the room because what do they do? They bow before him as the ruler of Egypt. But Benjamin's not there. Dad's not there. Mom's not there, right? That's at the beginning. And interestingly enough, that never really comes to fruition. There's never an occasion where the whole family is present and they bow down to Joseph. Because what happens after the speech? Joseph bursts into tears and says, I am Joseph. And his brothers are dumbfounded. And he says, no, really, I'm Joseph, who you sold into slavery. I'm now over Egypt. You are my brothers. Everything's going to be fine. God sent me here. Okay. Go get your dad. Bring him here. Settle in the land of Goshen. Right? And so they're saved from the famine through Joseph's intervention. It's an incredible story. Okay. But again, we miss the conclusion. And before we do that, let's talk about the major themes of this story. There's two of them. Okay. One is what we call providence. What we see in this story is that Joseph has a God-given destiny and that God brings him to that place. But when we talk about providence, the tension of providence isn't that God does good stuff. It isn't that God orchestrates his plans. It's that God does so in a world full of evil. And so if you were to chart a path to the fulfillment of Joseph's dream, you would, you would chart a straight path. But God's seems to be counterproductive. Step one, be betrayed by your brothers and sold into slavery. Step two, be falsely accused by your new owner's wife and go to prison. Step three, help a man by interpreting his dream and be forgotten. Right? When we talk about providence, that's what we're talking about. Is it's summed up in chapter 50 when Joseph says to this, this to his brothers, what you have meant for evil, God has meant for good. Now that's significant to us, isn't it? Because we live in a world of evil. And the question is not just, can God do good in spite of evil? The question is not, can God do good to resist evil? It's, what do we do with all the evil otherwise? And the story of Joseph is a story where the wrong intentions and the sinful acts of man, God uses. One, to save literally the known world, right? Because if it weren't for him being in prison to hear those dreams, then he wouldn't have stood before Pharaoh to hear his dreams, and therefore Egypt wouldn't have known about the coming famine and would have been unprepared, and the deaths would have been insurmountable. insurmountable. But two, it preserves the people of Israel, which is great and makes sense. You read this throughout the whole Old Testament. God's got a plan for Israel and he's continuously providing and caring for them. But in this case, who is Israel? They're the evil brothers who betrayed Joseph. Joseph doesn't say just what you have meant for evil, God has meant for good. He says to give you life. The question is not just can God work through the evil acts of men. The question is, can God work through our evil acts for our good? Because that's the tension of the world we live in. 
It's not a tension where you can divide the line, white hats and black hats, and hopefully with God's help, the white hats will prevail. The problem is deeper, it's darker. Like we saw in the flood, the tension is that there is evil in all of us, and that brings us to the second major theme of the story of Joseph, which is reconciliation and restoration. Because what do we have at the end? Not just 11 wicked brothers who are guilty. We have 11 wicked brothers who have repented and are forgiven and restored. Those are the major themes of the story of Joseph, right? They're the reason why this story is so compelling and amazing because here Joseph has all the power. His brothers are literally hanging by a thread in the fate of his hand. He can do whatever he wants and he works for their good. He does test them to make sure that they've truly repented. But he restores and he embraces and honestly it takes years for them not to wince when he reaches out for a hug. Because that's what they feel they deserve. So anyways, here's what happens next. Like I said, we stop reading the story right here, but Genesis doesn't. It keeps going, and two things happen. The first is Jacob, who's Israel, blesses Joseph's sons, okay, Ephraim and Manasseh. And if you read the story, there's a lot of common markers that we see throughout, okay? So God with with, uh, with Abraham was like Isaac, not Ishmael. And with Isaac, he was Jacob, not Esau. And so here, he turns to Joseph's sons, and he says, Ephraim, not Manasseh. And Joseph tries to interfere, because he says, let me bless your sons. And he crosses his hand so that his right hand is on Ephraim, the younger. And Joseph goes, Dad, you're getting old. You need to do it this way. And he says, no, this is the way it's going to be. Now, what are we anticipating at this point? God comes to Abraham and says, I will greatly multiply you. God comes to Isaac and says, I will greatly multiply you. God comes to Jacob and says the same thing. What we're expecting here is the line of succession. And we get it, in part. Look with me at chapter 48. Okay. Verse 14, and Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham, Isaac walked, the God who had been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let the name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth." Seems like it, doesn't it? As it was with Abraham, so also Isaac and myself, and now with your boys, and then he says, let them be multiplied. In fact, he goes on and he says, all the other tribes of Israel, all your brothers' families are going to say, may you be blessed as Ephraim and Manasseh were. He says, that's what's going to happen. But there's something missing. It's the king. There's no reference to the royalty. He stops short. He doesn't say, your sons will be the ruler, which again is surprising. Because if we look at Joseph's dream, wouldn't you say it was fulfilled? I had this dream that all my brothers would bow down to me, and bam, in Egypt it happens. But what happens in the next chapter, and this is the closing chapter except for the appendix, the one that just ties up the loose ends, in chapter 49 is he gathers his whole family 
and he blesses them prophetically one by one, and he says, here's what's going to happen next. Or in biblical language, let me tell you what will happen in the last days. And he goes by the sons, one after another, and he speaks about each one of them in turn. And the first three, he basically sets aside. He said, Reuben, you're a mess. Simeon, Levi, you're violent men. No one should listen to you. And then he gets to Judah, and notice what he says. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And listen to this, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Does that sound familiar? That's Joseph's dream. This whole time we've been looking at Joseph and he is just a glimpse, a shadow, a picture, a representation of what God's actually going to do. And it's not going to be through Joseph's line, but through Judah's. He says, your sons shall bow down to you. And then notice verse 10. Remember, what about the crown? What about the king? What does it say? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And then my ESV uh, says, until tribute comes to him. And that last line is a very difficult one. But let me tell you what I think is the best way to read it. And this is a possible reading of maybe three different ones. It's until the one whose right it is comes. The scepter, Judah is going to hold it until the king comes. Okay. And that seems to be how the rest of the Old Testament understands this. Because David shows up and they go, look, line of Judah, this is David. And then it's the son of David, which we'll talk about next week. Right? This is the path that's being taken here. But here's the thing. Joseph is a tremendous story of providence but it's just a drop in the bucket of the issue. Joseph takes the sins of his brothers and God uses it for their own good. Joseph, through that, overcomes a seven-year famine. But he's not even the king of Egypt. He's the second in command. And the king that is promised to Jacob is going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But there's clear connective tissue, isn't there, between Joseph and the coming Messiah? Why not just go straight through Judah? Why is Joseph even here? Because there's a visibility and a demonstration. And it's interesting, if you go and read Acts chapter 7, as a young man named Stephen speaks through before all the religious leaders of Israel, and he walks through their account, when he tells the story of Joseph, he points out two things in his telling. One, don't forget that the brothers hated Joseph. And two, don't forget that they didn't recognize him when they first saw him. And then he gets to Jesus and he says, you have killed the Messiah God sent. And you didn't recognize him for who he was. But it flows through the line of Judah. And here's the best part. What did I say the major themes of the story of Joseph are? Providence and reconciliation. But what Jesus goes through is such a greater and more profound story and accomplishes such a greater and more profound consequence that Joseph just becomes a rural happening instead of a universal transformation. 
when we have theological discussions about providence, the two verses that people bring up are this one we read in, in Genesis. I guess I just quoted it to you out of chapter 50. What you have meant for evil, God has meant for good. And then this one from the preaching of the book of Acts. If you want something to chew on, if you want something to argue about, something to rest in and wrestle with, there's probably not a better verse in all the Bible than this one. This is from Acts chapter 2, Peter's first sermon. And this is what he says. He says, men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, and listen to this phrase here, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who is the acting agent in the death of Christ? The hands of lawless men, an evil and sinful act, and the definite plan of God. You see, the thing, one of the things that's so unique about the Christian gospel is the way that God uses evil. Because the way that Jesus sets the world right is the cross. And so Joseph here is sold into slavery and then put in prison. But Jesus is obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and finds himself in a grave. And as it says here, what puts Jesus on the cross is the betrayal of Judas and the forsaking of the disciples and the evil intentions of the religious leaders and the failure of justice of Pilate and the sins of each one of us. And God turns that dark and horrible moment into the glory of the good news. And through that brings about restoration and reconciliation. When Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. He's not only creating an incredible example of forgiveness, he's also enacting it, making it possible. He's also bringing it about. And so, the reality of providence is not just, you know, when you get a flat tire, God still works it for good. It's that God took the most wicked act ever committed by human beings and absorbed in that all of the wickedness of human beings died and was raised again for us. That's why we can't settle for Joseph. That's why the story has to continue. It's why even Judah, who does have something that Joseph doesn't have, self-sacrifice. Right? He, he becomes part of the story and part of the beauty of the story by standing in and saying, let me bear the guilt. But he bears it as a guilty party trying to make things right. Jesus comes in total innocence as the party offended against and dies in the place of those who have sinned against him.
The question is this. This Christmas uh, season, do we want to settle for the righting of wrongs, which can come about a lot of ways? Or do we want to glory in the God who experienced the totality of wrong and still made it right? Let's pray. Lord, I pray this week that that sentence would ring in our ears. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until he who comes to whom it is his right, until the one who comes to whom the scepter belongs. Joseph was a good ruler, wise and benevolent, and brought life and not death. But how much more is Jesus who experienced worse and for the sake of those who sinned against him brought life instead of death, brought life through death. Lord, there is mystery here. There are places where we have to tap out in our ability to understand or even feel. But this is part of what makes the good news good that the good God turned our evil into goodness for us. And so we thank you, Lord, that you didn't stop with Joseph and that you didn't just send another Joseph and you didn't just send the son of Israel, but your own son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died on behalf of the unrighteous, the immortal one who tasted death so that we might know life, the good one who was without sin and totally righteous and that he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is providence. That is the greatest manifestation of your power and your character combined. That is why we can trust you with our own difficulties And it is why no difficulty in this life will ever compare to the glory that you have set set aside for us in the resurrection. I pray, Lord, just for a deep awareness of that this Christmas season, especially in, in the physical darkness of Seattle. This feels like such a dark winter, just four in the afternoon and the light is gone, but the light is present. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together.